Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hidden Histories. I hope that you are all safe and well in this incredibly strange and scary time. And I also hope that these podcasts can provide you a little bit of joy and entertainment in your isolation and that you are all staying at home waiting for this horrible, horrible time to pass. So for today's podcast, I interviewed Saul David, who is a prolific military historian. He is the author of so many fantastic books on various battles and military history. And this is all about his brand new book, Crucible of Hell, which is all about the Battle of Okinawa, right at the end of the Second World War, and is a relatively unknown battle in comparison to some of the most famous battles of the Second World War. I didn't know much about it, and it was just so fascinating to speak to Saul and hear about the most bloody battle that probably took place during the Second World War, and in history it even led to the the horrific um, acts of war against the Japanese with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Anyway, I hope that you enjoy the podcast and please do go out and get um, Saul's book. Or no, I better say not go out, but order online Saul's book because it is going to be another complete masterpiece. I should also probably add that there might be a few noises that are a little bit distracting because um, I did have my little girl with me for part of this podcast. And although she was thoroughly occupied by watching Frozen... Um, she did make a few squeaks. She's only two. So I'm just doing some told and we're all staying at home. So we're just all having to muddle on and get in, get, get on with everything together. So I hope that's not too distracting. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, Saul David, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you. Thank you for coming on in the middle of lockdown. Uh, not at all. I mean, uh, I haven't exactly been that busy recently, a little bit of writing, but uh, it's great to take a break. So delighted to talk to you. <laughs> well, um, I will already. I have already mentioned in the introduction to this, but um, there might be a, a bit of noise in the background on my end because my, my daughter is currently stood watching Frozen and singing along. So bear with me with that. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's rather nice to have a bit of musical accompaniment. So uh, I'm looking forward <laughs> to hearing that. Yeah, complete antithesis to the topic of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it is really. So let's talk about the Battle of Okinawa, which is the subject of your new book. It so this was I didn't know anything about this, and I just did some cursory research before having a chat with you, and I didn't realise how major this battle was and how decisive it was. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the initiative was behind it? How the Americans and the Japanese got to this point? Yes. Yeah, so you 
you've got to go all the way back to Pearl Harbor to give it a bit of context, which, of course, as we all know, happens in December 1941 and brings the Americans into the war. And they then got a a decision to uh, work out the best strategy to defeat their dual enemies now, because, of course, they're fighting Hitler as well as the Japanese. Mm -hmm. Um, And they decide that they're going to defeat the Europeans first, the Germans first. But at the same time, they've got to uh, inevitably devote significant resources to combating the Japanese. And they really go on the offensive in the summer of 1942 at Guadalcanal. That's their first major battle in the Pacific. And what you really then have thereafter from 42 to 45, which is when the Battle of Okinawa starts, is a twin, a sort of two-track strategy in the Pacific, which is to advance through the central um, Pacific islands on the one hand, but also to advance up uh, from the region of Guadalcanal, which is the um, uh, the Solomon Islands, pretty much next to New Guinea, and up there through the Philippines. So you've got these two tracks heading towards Japan, and they meet on the island of Okinawa, which in location is about 400 miles south of the most southerly Japanese home island of Kyushu. Uh, and but, but most significantly, it's, it's the first bit, or at least one of the first bits of Japanese Japan proper in terms of it being part of the, um, you know, the overall administrative structure of of Japan that the Allies get to in the war. So this is a significant moment when they land on Okinawa on the 1st of April 1945. And who exactly was involved? Well, it's really an American-led effort. So the vast majority of uh, troops, uh, but bear in mind that there are servicemen of all kinds. So it's, it's been described, the Battle of, uh, of Okinawa, as the largest air, land, sea battle in history. And that's because there was an enormous fleet of 1,300 vessels, warships, and also landing ships involved, about half a million men, and an awful lot of planes as well. You've got men from all three services, but you've also got an allied effort. So although the vast majority are American servicemen, you've also got uh, British ships, uh, the so-called British Pacific Fleet, which was the largest and most potent fleet we put into uh, onto the sea during the whole of the war. But it's playing a relatively subsidiary role because it's it's hugely outnumbered by the American uh, ships involved. But but that's not to say that it was just an American effort. There were British servicemen there, and there were also Australian um, South African and New Zealand as well. So it was it was very much a, a, an allied effort. And can you describe the scene um, that they came that they came upon when they landed on the shore? Yes, well, they they, they uh, understandably, given some of the previous experiences of landing on Japanese islands, were expecting a, a bloodbath on the beaches. They were expecting the Japanese to defend the beaches as they had at Iwo Jima just a, a month or so earlier, uh, and they were anticipating enormous casualties. What actually happens is there's no opposition on the beaches at all. And the uh, the American commander is a man called Buckner, General Buckner, who's actually fighting his first battle, um, uh, which, you know, and his inexperience is going to tell as the battle unfolds. But Buckner is convinced that they've hoodwinked the Japanese. And this is great news. They've got behind their defences and that, you know, the battles are all, all going to be over relatively quickly. What he doesn't realise is the Japanese have deliberately allowed them to land without any opposition because they've created their main defensive position in the, in the heart of the island where they've literally dug into the mountains these incredibly intricate system of defences that are going to take a, an awful long time and an awful lot of blood to, uh, to overcome. Why do you think the Japanese chose to alter their tactics as opposed to meet them on the beach as they had done previously? 
Well, it's very interesting the decision they take. They, they've actually got a very significant garrison on Okinawa, about 100,000 men. Um, and as I said, previous battles, they, they pretty much met the attackers on the beaches. But the reason they don't do it this, this, this time is for two reasons. One, that strategy hasn't really worked up till now. And two, there's a new plan for Okinawa. Their job on the island as, as, as soldiers on the island is to really hold the Americans for as long as possible. So in other words, they're not to commit men to the offensive, they're to act on the defensive. Meanwhile, the the Japanese Navy and the Japanese Air Force are going to commit enormous numbers of kamikaze resources. This is what makes this battle unique. It's the number of planes, ships, uh, manned submarines, you know, pretty much every way you can think of of launching a suicide weapon, the Japanese manage that. And their plan is to bring these suicide weapons, these kamikazes, in such enormous numbers at Okinawa that they will destroy the Pacific fleet. And of course, without the fleet, there's no way the soldiers that have been landed on on Okinawa will be able to survive. So that that's really the strategy: hold the soldiers on the land, and in meanwhile, use kamikaze to destroy the American fleet. God, there's, there's something that's that's quite terrifying, harrowing about the kamikaze culture, and um, and as you say, by destroying the fleet, you know, there's no way of of, of leaving of leaving of leaving a canal as well. Can you um, explain what that kamikaze culture was? Yeah, it's it's mystifying, isn't it, to modernise, and in fact, it was mystifying to the Allied soldiers uh, and terrifying to the Allied soldiers in 1945 that that so many Japanese servicemen would be prepared to sacrifice their lives as literally suicide bombers. Um, what, of course, we didn't understand then, and it's still hard to get your head around now, is that the, the whole kind of ethos of life in, in Japan was very different to, to Western culture. They didn't have the same kind of horror that suicide you know, holds in the Judeo-Christian um, tradition. In other words, it wasn't beyond the pale to the Japanese. In fact, far from it, the, the sense that you would give your life for the for a greater good, in, the, in this case, of course, the emperor, empire and the um you know and the and the japanese government was to be lauded and in fact if you didn't do that if you if you surrendered uh, when you were at war this was considered to be dishonorable and of course it, it it explains why so many allied prisoners of war were treated so harshly because the japanese didn't believe that any honorable soldier would have done that um it's nice to get a little bit of a compliment <laughs> <to> my, <laughs> my descriptions of what is going to be quite a grim scenario <laughs> Um, okay, so the Americans have landed and they're moving inland. And what was their reaction to um, when they were faced with this incredible defensive um, mechanism that the Japanese had put in place? Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, of course, they they, they come across the outposts and, and, you know, and the fighting's tough, but it's not impossible. And they're making reasonably good headway. But as they come up against the main system of defences, which was incredibly intricate. I mean, if you can imagine a normal defensive line, you, you, you've got to reach it, overcome it, and then move on to the next one. But the reason the, the defensive system was so terrifying and so effective on Okinawa is because it fired in all different directions. In other words, if you burrow into a mountainside, not only can you defend the front of that mountainside, you can defend the back as well. So even if you, you get to the crest line, even once the American soldiers got to the crest line and then tried to move on to the next one, they would literally be shot in the back as they tried to do that. So the only way you can overcome these these defensive systems is by winkling out all of the, of the defenders from 
inside the actual mountain. Uh, and that, as you can imagine, was a, a brutal, terrifying and incredibly difficult task to overcome. So slowly but surely, the the commander on Okinawa began to realize the, the task he was up against, Butner, as I mentioned before. Now, what Butner probably should have done, and he was certainly advised to do by his uh, subordinates, is to land behind the, the, the defensive system. In other words, a second landing um, that would force the Japanese to divide their troops and would, would, would enable them to approach this defensive system from, from the rear. It would, it would still have been a difficult task to overcome it, but it would have been easier. Um, but he doesn't do that. What he, He's convinced that the way you get them out is by using enormous amounts of firepower. There's a bit of tradition in American soldiering for this sort of thing. Uh, and therefore, he masses artillery, um, planes. They use napalm. And it's interesting, isn't it? We think of napalm as, as being a Vietnamese kind yeah. of horror weapon. Yeah. Actually, it was being used towards the end of the Second World War. So they're dropping enormous amounts of this petroleum jelly, jelly which, of course, if you get on your skin or your body, um, you know, literally burns you alive. And it's just horrific methods to winkle the Japanese out, and they're not very effective. And, and so, meanwhile, Buckner's soldiers are, are, are dying in their droves. And, what, and what's really tragic and really uh, gruesome about the battle is that the actual fighting close in was as bad as anything I've read about in any war ever. And certainly you could compare it to the worst of the fighting on the Eastern Front. And some of the descriptions of the diaries and letters and, and first-hand accounts that I've got from people on both sides leave you in no doubt that this was the last place in the world you, you would want to do have been in the summer of 1945. And just to put it in context, the war in Europe ends, uh, as we know, of course, in May 1945, this battle begins in April and is still going on well into June. So yeah. it's a it's a horrific endgame for for the Second World War. Um, and just when you know some of the servicemen, particularly people who had experience of some of the previous island battles, were thinking it couldn't get any worse, it did. Because it does go on for an extraordinary amount of time. I mean, eighty three days. Yeah, eighty three days. It's funny you think when you land on an island, there's no way for the defenders to go. And if you've got overwhelming firepower like the Americans had, both from the sea, from the air, uh, all the weapons they had, all the extra soldiers they had. You know, I talked about the hundred thousand Japanese defenders, and they fought, fought pretty much to the last man. Mm. Uh, but you've got up to half a million American and Allied servicemen pitched against them so they've got a you know they've got a significant superiority in numbers and still it took 83 days to quell resistance on the island and the you know and the even more tragic aspect of this battle is that unlike some of the previous japanese islands where the, the japanese at least had made an effort to remove the civilian population that they had done it done so in a, only in a half-hearted way in okinawa so that of the pre-war population or, or at least the pre-battle population of about 375,000 civilians um, the majority of those were the vast majority were still on the island and 125,000 of them are going to lose their life in this battle lives in this battle I mean it's, you know it's almost impossible to get your heads around those sort of casualties and even more tragic than those bare statistics are the way so many of them died because Okay, you might imagine, well, they were, they're caught in, in between the, you know, it's just bad luck, they're, they are casualties of war. No, what actually happened is that the Japanese convinced the Okinawa to, uh, are, you know, part of, as I explained, Japan, uh, you know, greater Japan, but they're not, you know, directly ethnic Japanese. They managed to convince the Okinawans that if they surrendered to the Americans, as surely they would have to sooner or later, 
they would be um, they would be badly treated. They would be raped and murdered, and it was better for them to commit suicide. And enormous numbers of them are hoodwinked into believing that and and commit suicide. Probably the most heartbreaking single bit of detail that I include in the book is a description by um, a young sixteen year old Okinawan boy describing how he kills his 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 family, his siblings, and then his mother. And it's it's just heartbreaking, oh, isn't it? That's just that's really tragic, and it's something that you know isn't. The, the impact on civilians in battles like this is not always um, looked into in detail. So it's, in, it's, it's wonderful that you've included that within the book. Um, so what sort of numbers are we talking on both sides? Well, the Japanese had, had about 100,000 troops on the island. Um, they fought uh, because it wasn't, just a, uh, it wasn't just a battle that was fought by the Japanese troops on the island. As I, I mentioned, a lot of these kamikaze troops, there were, there were naval assets involved. In fact, the largest battleship in the world, Yamato, um, a Japanese battleship, which was pretty much the last big capital ship they had left at this stage of the war, was used itself on a suicide mission. Um, uh, it, its plan was to get as far as the island, sink as many American ships as it could, and then beach itself on the side of the island and, and, and use itself as a kind of mobile gun platform. You know, that that, that doesn't happen. It gets knocked out by um, American planes on the way to the island. And on that ship alone, 2,600 people lose their life. But if you add all the casualties on the Japanese and Okinawan side together, you're talking about probably about 110,000 soldiers lose their lives and only a small fraction of the original garrison uh, surrender. And most of those are Okinawans, Okinawans serving in the Japanese armed forces. On the American side, it's the costliest battle of the war. They lose 12,500 dead, uh, another 37,000 wounded. Uh, and on top of that, Helen, just to give you a sense of the kind of the, the the kind of nervous collapse that there was on the American side, given the extremity of the fighting and the barbarity of the combat. Another 25,000 casualties who, who had battle fatigue, in other words, PTSD, effectively, mm. as we would call it today. People who just couldn't go on because of the experience of, of what they'd seen and what they were experiencing. So, you know, they take the Americans take about 70,000 casualties, and that, that 12,500 uh, lost in the battle is, is far and away the most serious uh, losses of the whole war for the Americans. It's, it's an extraordinary level of fatalities, isn't it? I mean, that sh is that one of the largest numbers of fatalities during the war, would you say? Well, um, if you add the civilians, of course, it is because, um, you know, even even famous, famous, infamous uh, uh, battles like the um, uh, Battle of Stalingrad, for example, don't have more fatalities on uh, certainly not on the combat side um, than that. So it's it's an absolutely horrific meat grind of a battle. And what, what's so striking about it is. It, when it comes in the war, it comes pretty much at the end of the war, when most people think the war is over, it's a done deal. Well, it becomes a done deal directly as a result of Okinawa, because so horrified are the American um, uh, generals and politicians, in particular President Truman, that they begin to realize, well, of course, you know, we now know that Okinawa is the last battle. They didn't know that. They were assuming they're going to have to fight for Japan proper. And when they get to Japan proper, they know perfectly well the Japanese garrison, and it's in its millions still at this point, is going to fight tooth and nail, and they're going to draw the civilians into the fight. And, and the fight for the Japanese home islands, that's the main home islands, they anticipate will be an absolute bloodbath that will that will 
cost another, probably another million Allied casualties, and countless uh, Japanese are also going to lose their life, which is the point at which Truman says, given that we don't want another Okinawa, we don't want Okinawa to be repeated from one end of Japan to another. That's a direct quote from Truman. Mm. Um, What can we do? You know, what alternative have we got? And, you know, someone pipes up in the the meeting he's having, and this is on the 18th of June, just before the battle ends on Okinawa. And they said, well, actually, you know, we, we developed this new weapon. He, he knows a bit about the atomic weapon program mm-hmm. because he's been briefed since he became um, president after Roosevelt's death in, in early April. But he doesn't know if, it, if it's going to work and nor do any of his advisors. So what he then decides is, OK, we, we've got this weapon. If it works, if when we've tested it, it works. I will consider using it, but I'll use it only after we've threatened uh, its use first. And if the Japanese ignore that threat, then we're actually going to use use the weapon. And that is, of course, exactly what happened. So would you say that Okinawa was arguably a prequel to Hiroshima? Yes, no, without question. I mean, it's it's on the record, not just from Truman, not just from Truman and his uh, chief military advisors, but also from from. Uh, Churchill, actually, interestingly, because Churchill is attending with Truman the big conference in Potsdam in Berlin in July 1945, when they get news, or, or at least when Truman gets news, that the first test has been successful in the in the New Mexico desert back in the United States. And this is a big game changer. And as soon as Churchill realizes it's happening, he says, thank God, we don't have to have another Okinawa. Um, you know, it's like a whole load has been, a weight has been lifted from his shoulders. Now, ever since, Helen, quite understandably, you know, particularly today, people say, well, was it necessary to use nuclear weapons in this way? You know, how could you use nuclear weapons against two cities that were, um, they were deliberately chosen, those cities, by the way, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because they had a strong military element to them. One was a one was a major garrison, the other had a lot of war industries attached to it. But, but you know, the Allies were un, under no illusion that a lot of civilians would lose their lives. What what Truman was interested in doing is is... Uh, reducing the potential numbers of Americans who would lose their lives before the end of the war. And interestingly, as he goes on record as saying Japanese as well, because he was under no illusions and I'm under no illusions, actually having read all the detail that many, many more on both sides would have died if, if that if that final battle, so-called um, Operation Downfall for the main islands of Japan had taken place in the autumn of 1945 and the spring of 1946. So, so Truman believed that um, as a result of Okinawa, Hiroshima and Nagasaki was, was a, a brutal necessity, essentially. Exactly. Lesser of two evils. Um, you know, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories and not all of them conspiracy theories about what else the Americans were trying to do. Mm. Yes, they were trying to impress the Russians. They knew uh, there was some tough dealing with the Russians in the years to come. And of course, we move into the Cold War in the not too distant future. Um, you know, having nuclear weapons and, and being able to show that they worked was going to be a big game changer for the Americans. That was a factor. It's absolutely true. But in my mind, I'm not in any doubt that the biggest single reason they used the nuclear weapons in the way they did, when they did, is to save lives, to save lives chiefly American first, but also to save Japanese lives. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So in your book, you, um, you look very equally at both sides of the story. You, you go between um, the American accounts and the Japanese accounts. Um, who were some of the survivors that lived to tell the tale? And what are, what are some of the main um, recollections of the battle that that stick in your mind in particular? Yeah, I was determined to tell the story as much as possible from both sides. You know, you're, you're always going to struggle having as many um, voices from the defeated, not least because, as I've already explained, so many of the Japanese garrison uh, didn't have to tell the tale. But there are a number of significant voices that I was able to track down. One of the best ones, actually, was uh, the chief staff officer on the Japanese side, a man called Yahara, Colonel Yahara, who really, it, he was the architect of the plan to defend the island. And he survived because the commander and his deputy, who both committed suicide, you know, ritual suicide, having lost the battle, um, advised him to get back to Japan. Now, Yahara did get back to Japan. In fact, he was taken prisoner first, and he eventually is released and goes back to Japan. And he's never really forgiven by the military establishment. But as historians, we're tremendously lucky that he survived because he later wrote a very detailed account of of his time on the island, the defence of the island, what they were trying to do, and how the battle unfolded. So Yahara really is one of the centrepieces of my um grand strategic story from the Japanese side. But then again, there were, there were an awful lot of ordinary Japanese and ordinary Okinawan voices that uh, also survived the battle, particularly Okinawan voices, which I was able to get by a trip, uh, research trip to Okinawa um, uh, about 18 months ago. Uh, and they, very fortuitously for, for an English-speaking <laughs> historian like me, uh, a lot of the voices have been translated and they are in um, 
various archives all dotted all over the island. And, you know, it is about the most harrowing first-hand accounts uh, I've, I've ever had the misfortune. Well, the good fortune, if you're writing a book with a misfortune, if you, if you, you know, you actually have to stomach some of this material that I've had the misfortune to read. It's really, really moving, grim accounts. But one of the most important things I've always felt since I started out as a historian, Helen, is that, you know, if you're going to write about war, it has to be unvarnished. It has to be mm. as accurate as possible, mm. keeping no details, um, hidden because that is the only way people will get a full sense of the impact of what going to war is going to do for a civilian population in particular um and so from the okinawan japanese side i was able to piece together really quite a quite a uh, a detailed account of what they went through and also what what, what intrigued me what how they were motivated you know why they were so determined to, to join up as as kamikaze and i've got one particular passage where I describe a kamikaze pilot coming home just before he's going to go on his mission in which he asks if he can marry his stepsister and uh, the family are you know kind of a, a bit a bit blindsided by this but they agree and they have a hurried ceremony he marries his stepsister and it's interesting what his stepsister says because she survives the war of course uh, and what she says is um, I was delighted to marry him. It was an honor because he was going to, you know, uh, sacrifice his life for, for, for our nation. And, you know, and, and we all applauded him. I mean, what's in, so what's interesting about the kamikaze is not only were they motivated to do it, but also the civilians, the, you know, the family and friends were right behind them. Years later, of course, she changed her mind. Um, you know, she couldn't believe the the gratuitous sacrifice that had been expected of, of her husband. Uh, and what makes the story particularly tragic is that the single night they spend together, she conceives a child, and the child is is a chance of you know her husband living on in the, in, the, in the next generation. But sadly, the, the child doesn't survive very long, and is you know it, it dies in, I think mm. under a year old. So mm, you know so she sad. doesn't even have the child to console her with the loss of her husband. So sad. So there's there is a, a very dark glory in death for for your country, um, in the Japanese culture. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting. The, the, um, the, the subtitle for the, for the American edition of this book is, is, is different. I mean, it, in, in, in the UK, it's the last great battle of the Second World War, which says it all. But in, in the US, I, you know, in many ways, the, the subtitle is, is, is more descriptive of, of the ups and downs of this battle. It's the heroism and tragedy of, of, of Okinawa. And, that, you know, that says it all, really, because, you, you know, to understand why the Japanese were prepared to fight tooth and nail, you have to understand their motivation. And yet, on the other hand, uh, to see what these ordinary Americans went through, people from all over America and every kind of walk of life, to see what they were prepared to endure, this so-called greatest generation. You know, you can't help but be, uh, you know, just admiring of their stoicism and their mm. determination to keep going and get the job done. And it's those people that you feel the most sympathy for, even the most empathy for, as the as they get the news finally after the dropping of the atomic weapons so that the war is over and, and you know one guy he says it all we, we realized for the first time we were going to live and we were overjoyed yeah and, you know and it's counterintuitive to think that the use of atomic weapons would bring that sort of joy but when you've been through the experience of okinawa um that's what it felt like they got a reprieve from a death sentence so what do you think the American troops' response was to that? Because they didn't have that same um, suicidal, well, <laughs> um, openly suicidal attitude to war. How do you think they faced that in battle? Was that, that must have been 
added, well, added some kind of terror to what was already a terrifying and harrowing situation? I think it's a, it's it's an excellent question because not only did it add, add terror, you know, understandable terror, it also added a certain amount of contempt. And I think another of the tragedies of the story is that is how hard, how thick-skinned, how tough the Americans, how almost brutal the Americans become as a result of of facing such a redoubtable foe, you know. And there's a lot of racial language all the way through the battle, which you know is pretty unedifying. But they were so horrified at the at the determination of the Japanese to keep killing even as they were lying wounded on the ground, even as they were being tended to on the ground, that they became uh, brutalized themselves and, and, and pretty much towards the end of the battle wouldn't take any prisoners. I mean, some were taken, of course, particularly towards the end, but, you know, an awful lot of Japanese servicemen or Okinawans who might have survived were, were shot out of hand by the Americans because they simply didn't trust them, mm-hmm. didn't trust them to, to take them prisoner. And, the toll on this, of course, is felt by these Americans in years to come. I mean, one of the interesting things I wanted to discover uh, towards the end of the book is to see the impact, the longer term impact on some of the Americans, some of the major American characters who I follow through the story. And generally speaking, it's not a good one. You know, pretty much all of them struggle to come to terms with what they've been through. And their lives are affected more or less by by the sights and sounds and, and, and things they've seen. And you've really got a whole generation of, of servicemen, in my view, who fought in the Pacific, who are traumatized by what yeah. they've gone through. And of course, their families are, 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 going to, um, are going to suffer as a consequence of that. Yeah, there's so the huge resounding impact. And um, which leads on seamlessly to my next question, which is um, what were, aside from the obvious post-traumatic stress um, impacts of the battle, what were the resounding consequences, do you think, that had a ripple effect into history? Well, I mean, the major consequence of the battle is the use of a, atomic weapons. You can, you know, the, the, some people have drawn the connection before, but not as... Not as, not as uh, not as specifically probably as I do in this book, in, in the sense that you you absolutely can see the battle itself and the horror of the battle and the casualties and the shock of the battle for the Americans playing into their decision to use nuclear weapons. And once you've made a decision to, to use nuclear weapons, once you can never go back. Now, many people, you know, pacifists, you know, as I was growing up, my mother was a great supporter of CND and she always used to say to me, you know, per se, nuclear weapons are evil. I, I don't believe that for a minute. I, I think they were, they are a, a weapon of awful destructive capacity that once invented could not be disinvented. You you have yeah. to use them as effectively and as responsibly as you can. And mm-hmm. and we may, you know, I, I, may, I may take this point back one day, who knows, but so far they've never been used again. And that might tell you actually that the, 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 the method in which they, you know, mutually assured destruction and uh, to use them to prevent another major superpower uh, fighting you in an all-out war is something that we've probably benefited from since then, you know. So they're not good per se, but some good has come out of the uh, invention of nuclear weapons. Yeah, and then I suppose in a, in a response to fear, they are a, a fear response. I mean, the fear of... of the inevitable happening um they're used as a as a weapon to prevent that yes and you had to you know it's awful to say this but you had to have seen them in action to even have the imagination yeah. of what they could do mm-hmm. and and what of course we now know is that the destructive capability of, of modern 
uh, atomic weapons is many times the the size of what they did in in uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. As bad as it was, of course, the destructive uh, capacity is many times that. So you can't even conceive really using them uh, now. Uh, and in and in that sense, they are quite a useful deterrent. Yeah. Um, so going back to this to this happening of your English um, version of this book, um, it's called the Last Great Battle. Um, why? I mean, why would you say that it's relatively unspoken about? Because it's something that I, it's a battle that I wasn't particularly aware of or had much, um, I'd heard of it, but I didn't have much background on it at all. Um, if that's the case, I mean, why do you think that it's not been lost in, in history? I wouldn't say that, but it's, it doesn't have, it doesn't have quite the, um, the headlines as, as many others have during the Second World War and after. Yes, and you're you're not alone. I mean, of course, I've now read the book, so I've am <laughs> full of the details and the, and you know and, and the horrors as we've been discussing of, of Okinawa. But I didn't really know much about it. And as I began to read a few lines, it was interesting that I came across the idea for writing the book in a, in a Truman um, biography, the excellent Truman biography. Mm-hmm. It was published a couple of years ago, and he describes, you know, it's during Truman first coming into office, what was happening at the time around the world. And the war in Europe was ending, but the Battle of Okinawa was just beginning. And I thought, really? Um, you know, and so how does all this pan out? But to answer your question specifically, uh, I don't think there's any doubt that there's been a, you know, in, uh, the view of both Britons and, and the Western allies generally is that the war ends when Hitler's toppled. Yeah, and absolutely. Everybody we, uh, thinks VE Day, that's it. Exactly, and although we know that there's there's some business still to be taken care of, um, it's it's a sort of afterthought in our minds. When, when you read the full story of Okinawa, and when you realise that what they assume is is coming next, if we'd ever invaded, you know, if we, we take a counterfactual for a second, if they hadn't used those nuclear weapons, if the test hadn't worked, if they'd never had the option, and we'd fought for Japan, then. Okinawa itself, and certainly the, the final battle for Japan, would have, would loom much larger in our historical consciousness. Um, but because it didn't, uh, there's this kind of feeling that that, that the 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 end game is 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 you know is, is just that it's mm. just a, it's just an extra bit of information. But you need to understand the sequence of events and why they took the decisions they did, and it gives you a very different feel actually on the end of the Second World War, in the sense that, you know, it's interesting when the troops in Okinawa get the information that the war in Europe's over, it's just, a, you know, it's like, it's, it's of no matter to them. You know, it's just a tiny minor bit of news for the, for the major business at hand, which is fighting their immediate battle and then going on to fight the major battle for, for Japan proper. So, you know, it's interesting from the American perspective, um, they too also regard uh, the, you know, the, the, the race to Berlin, as it were, as the end game. But actually, the real business of fighting and the real trauma of the Second World War is all in the Pacific, which is why stories like Okinawa should and maybe will in future loom a little larger in their consciousness. Oh, Saul, it's as always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, tell us about your new book. What's the title and where can, where can people get it? And it's, I'm so sorry that you've not had the launch that it deserves in the in the wake of all of this so yes um, you, you thanks helen i really appreciate that it's it's you know it's a delight to talk to you it's great to be able to discuss the book because you know normally i'd have been i'd have been beginning to be on my uh, uh 
tour of events and I'll be, you know, I'll be singing from the rooftops about this extraordinary story. Um, I can't do that. So, you know, this is the only way we, we, for the moment, at least, that I, I can really discuss it. But, you know, I, I, I feel on the one hand, I've, I've been given a great opportunity to tell this story, particularly to, uh, to British people who, as you say, don't really know much about it. There aren't that many chapters of the Second World War, certainly significant chapters of the Second World War that haven't been, you know, written about many, many, many times. Um, this is one of them. So I was incredibly lucky to come across this story um, that I can't, you know, do it its full justice in terms of publicity for the, for the meantime. Well, that's just, you know, that's just the way it's going to be. I, you know, we're all in the same boat. Lo- loads of people are in a far worse position than me. So, you know, it'd be, it would be, it would be very badly done if I was to complain too much about the situation I find myself in. It's bad timing, but you know, a good book in my view will out whether it does when it's first published uh, or whether it does when it's read in five years uh, from now. So I'm not too concerned without, not trying to sound too immodest that this will be a book I hope people will be reading in years to come. I'm sure it will be, along with all of your others. Um, so it's called Crucible of Hell, and you can get it on Amazon, any online bookshops, and actually probably worth encouraging people to shop in some more independent bookshops as well online to try and keep those Yeah, I, I, I feel, you know, I, it's, it's very interesting. One of the good things, I think there, there will be some good things that come out of the lockdown, and, and one of them might be moving us away from the traditional places that we buy our mm. books the big chains and you know amazon is the kind of one shop online bookseller you know the amazon have classified books as non uh, uh, non-emergency items and if you want to buy a copy of crucible of hell you can do on amazon but it's going to take a week for it to get to you and you're much more likely to get it uh, quicker if you buy from your local independent bookshop that may even deliver it by hand. So, and it's, in, and it's by coincidence, I'm signing an awful lot of books today. You might uh, find hard to believe, but I am, that have been sent to me by the publishers that are, that are only for independent booksellers. And I oh, hope, you know, um, that I hope some of the people listening will be able to get one of those copies. So yeah, I would urge people to do that. And also, also to consider the, ebook which will come mm. you know mm. automatically to your e-reader um, i love physical books myself i'm sure you do too. i do i yeah i've never owned a kindle i just i love holding a book although i've, I've recently bought hillary mantel's um new book and i need a lectern to read that it's <laughs> 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 I know that. Me too. Me too. I'm really good at bedtime. It's about the only time I can actually physically hold it up. But it's um, yeah. I love reading in the bath without going into too much detail. But, but that that book is a little bit too heavy to read. Well, I'm sure you've got lots of time for baths at the moment. So. <laughs> Yeah, I have, I have, but, but unlike you, I've got, you know, I, I don't have any little people anymore to pay, but, um, you know, funnily enough, it is one of the things I miss. Bath time was always my job all the way through my years of fatherhood. Um, is it? Yeah, it's my, hus- it's my husband's as well. <laughs> I, I suspect there are, there are husbands all over the country. It's, the time, it's the time when I go downstairs and have a gin and tonic. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, talking of which, um, I, I know this is probably an old wise tale and a load of nonsense, but the... the the, the tonic is supposed to be some tiny little protection against COVID. I'm sure that's a load of nonsense, but it, it'll, it'll certainly encourage No, well, that encourages, I don't need encouraging, but that that is going to now be my tagline. Oh, well, thank you so much. It was lovely to speak to you. And um, you're on Twitter. So what is your Twitter name? People can follow you. Uh, yeah, well, this is a giveaway, actually, because uh, it'll tell you my age, but at Saul David 66. <laughs> Spring chicken. You gotta you gotta do the math. You've got to work your way back from 2020. Thank you so much, Saul. 
And um, I hope to have you on Hidden Histories again in with your next book, which I'm sure will be imminent. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.